digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD, Will the Thrill, and TJ2. Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD, along with me for this very long ride is Will the Thrill. I was here when Michael Jackson was still alive. (laughs) And what are you drinking, darling? Well, this, of course, will be the Offshoot Relax Hazy IPA. Excellent. Anything fun about the the can? Uh, It's the one with the shark coming up, very similar to the movie poster for Jaws, where there's the person kind of in an inner tube enjoying a beer, but below the surface, big old shark coming up. So I think I think we've talked about that one before on the show, so. Yes, it's enjoyable. I, I would I would recommend it. Excellent. And uh, we would love to introduce my brother at this time. But unfortunately, he's off doing important news things because Shoot. apparently news doesn't wait for a podcast. Yeah, he's a big important newsman and we have to respect that. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, we don't really have any announcements. So I guess we are <laughs> just going to go almost perfectly straight into this episode you guys let's do it um all right but first let's take a moment to talk about better help taking a moment is a good idea especially taking a moment for your mental health because everyone no matter where they are in life can use a little help we spend a lot of time working on things that we are sure are important our careers our bodies our diets but let me ask you when was the last time you focused on your mental health I asked myself that question. The answer scared me. It was too long. Like most people, I was doing all that stuff I mentioned and something wasn't adding up. The equation wasn't balanced and I was convinced something was wrong with me. What I really needed was somebody to talk to. I was feeling completely disconnected from the world and I feel like there was nowhere I could go. And thankfully, I found BetterHelp. BetterHelp allows you to get the specific help you need for whatever is eating away at you. They ask you target questions, set you up with the right therapist where you can talk about whatever you want. That's the best part. It's customized therapy to cover big topics, small topics, and that counselor will be best suited for your needs. Trust me, I have a great counselor. It's simple to use. It gives you access to a licensed therapist from the comfort of your home. And it's much more affordable than in-person therapy. Not just the rates, but the idea of traveling with gas prices being what they are. Well, that speaks for itself parking, it can be a huge headache. But with BetterHelp, you can get set up with a licensed therapist in less than 48 hours. This was a game changer for me. It's a game changer for many others. And that's why we here at Rock and Roll Heaven are proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. We even have a special offer for our listeners. You can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com. All you need to do is enter our code betterhelp.com slash rock heaven one more time betterhelp.com slash rock heaven get 10 percent off thank you again to better help for this sponsorship and thank you for helping me better help better life make sure guys that you do take the opportunity to take advantage of that awesome promo there's nothing more important than you know taking yourself seriously listening to yourself and sometimes you know, you go to the doctor when you have, you know, when your, your eyes hurt or your, your feet hurt or whatever, it's, you know, we need to kind of normalize taking care of your, your mental health. And Absolutely. that starts by 
just sometimes getting an evaluation and seeing where you are, just having a checkup. And it's important just to have a sounding board sometimes. So I would highly suggest uh, taking advantage of that promo. So now with that, you guys, we are on part 19 <laughs> of Michael Jackson. And if you will remember last that time, it? that's no, that's not it. That's not it. We still have 20 and 21. One's been written. The other one has not. But we are so close. Got it. We're so close to the end. So we're going to pick up this time on February 13th, 1997. And that is when Prince Michael Jackson, Michael's son, was born at Cedar sinais Medical Center. He is actually now known as Prince Michael the First, and I'll get to why that is a thing later. Michael's grandfather and great-grandfather were both named Prince, by the way, so he is certainly not hero-worshipping the other Prince. Now, to be clear, this is a child he had with Debbie Rowe, correct? Correct. Okay, got it. He will go on to have two kids with Debbie, but I will get to her in just a couple minutes. Got it. Both Michael and Debbie cut the umbilical cord and he spent five hours in intensive care with a minor problem. I tried to find out what that minor problem was, but I, I just, it's just lost to history, hmm. but then he was rushed out of the hospital and off to Neverland ranch. So he was born, spent five hours in the hospital and then left. When Debbie wow. was released from Cedars, she went to recoup at a friend's house. Michael said in a statement, I have been blessed beyond all comprehension. I work tirelessly at being the best father I can be. I appreciate that my fans are elated, but I hope that everyone respects the privacy that Debbie and I want for our son. I grew up in a fishbowl and I will not allow that to happen to my child. Please give my son his privacy. So Debbie and Michael posed for some photographs with Prince in March at the Four Seasons Hotel, uh, though the poses seem warm and Michael and Debbie seem really proud, this was the first time that Debbie had seen the baby since she gave birth to him six weeks prior. She oh, was wow. actually, yeah, she was actually smuggled into the hotel room and given the infant to hold and told to smile for the camera and then was thanked profusely by Michael and then just like sent out on her way. So this wasn't like a lovey-dovey kind of thing. This was a photo session and that was it. A woman who worked as a chef at Neverland recorded the way that Prince was treated in the first few months. Debbie wasn't around and the staff really never saw her and that the baby was cared for by a team of six nannies and six nurses. They all worked eight hour shifts. So the baby would always have two nurses and two nannies on at all times. They would be kept under heavy surveillance at this time by both bodyguards and video surveillance. And each of the nannies had special training. The daytime team members would do exercise drills with the baby to build up his strength. And the nighttime team would sing to Prince and read to him. He was only like three weeks old at this time. <laughs> and he's getting the royal treatment. No pun intended. <laughs> See what I did there? I, yep. Clear as a clear as clear as day. Low yep. hanging fruit. I'm sorry. <laughs> it did seem to anybody that was around that anytime he cried, it was because he wanted his mother. Like, so that's what people would infer. Uh, now, the staff would go on to say that sometimes Prince would sleep in Michael's room in a crib that was filled with stuffed animals. Now, everybody ag agreed, including the nannies, that the baby did get excellent care. And they actually measured the air quality in the room once an hour. When they fed them, all the utensils had to be boiled and they could only be used for one type of food. And then... After they were done, they would throw away all the utensils. So, is this like, something Michael had them do, or yes, 
Oh my God. Yes. So like the air had to be purified and tested and, you know, there was no crossover with his food and he was actually given a new toy every day apparently for sanitary reasons. Michael instructed his staff to discard his old, like, fluffy toys when Prince fell asleep. So he would have, he'd be given, like, Mm. a bunny in the morning and was like, here you go, here's your bunny for the day. And then, you know, he would play with it. Then he'd fall asleep and the nurses would come through and chuck it. It'd be gone. Wow. Debbie really didn't have any input and the nannies maybe saw her three times. And every time she was there, she seemed really sullen. Now, despite all the things that were happening in their marriage, Lisa was compelled. This is Lisa Marie Presley, which we talked about last episode. Lisa Marie was compelled to be kind of in the know for what was going on in Michael's life. So all of a sudden she started hanging out with Janet and she even advised allegedly advised Janet on how to get back into shape for her upcoming velvet rope tour, which side note Velvet Rope was actually one of my favorite albums by Janet, but you know, we will, we'll talk about that more one day. Yeah, that's a long conversation. It is a long conversation and this is a very long episode I wanted to get (laughs) at, so we will talk about that later. However, not everything was what it seemed. It's actually pretty unlikely that they were actually hanging out together. It just seemed like they were having fun because uh, that same week they were seen shopping, having lunch, going to a movie, and even catching an off-Broadway play that both of them We're wearing disguises for, (laughs) which I guess just being a Jackson, you end up disguising yourself somehow, some way. I feel like it's required. Yeah. But I I wonder if Janet's was as bad as Michael's were. Like she was like wearing like a fuzzy ape head or something. I know because he had the bad mustaches and beards and just crazy, crazy stuff. (laughs) Probably my favorite, like looking back on everything, my favorite one was when he was proselytizing for Jehovah's Witness. And he went into that woman's house and, and she was like, this man has weird hair. And then like the next day, her neighbor was like, did Michael Jackson come to your house? And she was like, oh, what? <laughs> so that was probably my favorite one of, of any disguises. But um, Lisa attended the launch party for the Velvet Rope CD shortly after she attended the MTV Video Music Awards together with Janet. So if you can't tell, I think there is still some sort of like lingering feelings that Lisa Marie had for Michael that were sort of, I don't even know if they're unrequited because Michael still really cared about her too. So, but they don't. I mean, they had to love each other, you know, on some level and I'm sure it just didn't go away overnight, you know? Well, I'm sure. Also, they have a lot in common. True. Hopping over to his career for just a couple minutes, Michael had considered following his history with a sequel album called History Book Two, which engineer Robert Hoffman said would have followed a similar format with both new songs and his greatest hits. It would have included more of his old hits because there were songs such as Human Nature, Dirty Diana, Smooth Criminal, and Dangerous that weren't part of the first one. And then there were the songs like You Are Not Alone and the Earth Song that he wanted to add. But Mm. recording a whole new album at this stage would have been time consuming and Michael was interested in a shorter project. So the history book two concept was talked about again, but it was never that big of an idea for Michael. Instead, Michael decided to record uh, for four new songs for a maxi single to promote the forthcoming European leg of history tour. So he's actually still on tour with the first album we talked about how he was breaking that up into two different legs mm-hmm. and i think it was supposed to end like the first leg ended in hawaii if i'm remembering correctly and then it would start back again in germany so there was supposed to be a break in which he could actually 
have enough time to release material. So he, he was going to do this maxi single to just promote the European leg of the tour. And Sony did like the idea, but they believed that a full album would perform better commercially. The label's idea was to fill out the album with nine club remixes from songs in the history, which Matt Forger said would be aimed more at the international market. Because remember at this time, like club remixes were doing really, really well. Like we're talking about like, I believe (laughs) this is going to be so silly, but I believe the Macarena came out in 1994 and then Los Los Lonely Boys or Los Del Rio. I cannot remember which one it is. Los Del Rio, yeah. Los Del Rio. Okay, Mm -hmm. thank you. Remixed it into the hit that we know as the standard Macarena, which can be crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So it was songs like that. There, there are other, there are other bands that were remixing things like Bohemian Rhapsody into club mixes. And so, you know, this was a big thing. So uh, aiming the club remixes at the international market would actually kind of hit the sweet spot. Huh. So the album filled that purpose as the remixes had much more of an international dance sound. Michael would get back into the studio to work on the new songs after the conclusion of his Hawaii concerts when he took the five-month break. That was when he set out to complete the album. Forger said that I was there to make sure that the album got the finish the idea portion done. Uh, He was ready to have it released in time for the second part of the tour. With limited time on his side, Michael had chosen to finish his favorite songs which failed to make the previous album dangerous and history rather than write and record completely new material from scratch. So in January of 1997, recording began not in California, but on the shores of Lake Geneva in Switzerland. It was said that Michael loved the calmness and the beauty of the location. The team recorded at Mountain Studios located in Montreux Casino. Now, does Mountain Studios ring a bell? Yes. Is that, did Queen record there? They didn't just record there. They owned it. Oh, wow. They actually owned it until 1993. They recorded several of their classic albums at the studio. And so did the Rolling Stones, ACDC, David Bowie. They all worked there. So like this was a pretty legit place to record your album. Yeah, it became, like you said, a destination because I think of Queen's name. Doesn't hurt. Exactly. So it was at the Mountain Studio where work resumed to lay down a track which was started six years earlier during the Dangerous Sessions with producer Teddy Riley called Blood on the Dance Floor. During the sessions, Michael had a hard time of getting the songs to sound the way he wanted. But like many other songs he had left on the shelf, he also felt like he could get it right eventually. The team took took Riley's original demo with them to Switzerland, but as it existed only on digital audio tape, the track had to be completely recreated. Hmm. I guess they were using a different kind of technology now. So I'm sure, yeah. So they had to re-record a new master. Michael was over the moon with what they had done, and he had an absolute blast at Montreux. So it was a good time for him. Michael returned to California in early February to shoot a video for Blood on the Dance Floor. That same week, Prince Michael was born. So naturally, he was a little distracted on the set. Mm. But <laughs> I can see I why. Mean, he just became a new dad. Like it's I, a big deal. It's yeah. a big, it's a big, big deal. Uh, director Vince Patterson said that the two still had an incredible time, despite the fact that Michael was a little distracted when they were working together. He said, Mike, Michael gave me so much freedom. He just trusted me. Patterson said he loves the idea of dancing with a girl and love the whole concept. We also shot a super eight version that Michael loved, but Sony didn't want to use. 
After shooting completed, Michael attended a gala in Hollywood to celebrate Elizabeth Taylor's 65th birthday. He <laughs> sang a song that he wrote especially for his best friend while in Switzerland called Elizabeth, I Love You. Michael composed the song over the phone with, I'm going to say this wrong name wrong, Buzz Conan. Buzz helped him co-write Gone Too Soon from Dangerous as well. Michael also sang at another gala in honor of Sammy Davis Jr. in November of 1989. And so Buzz also helped him write that one as well. With this simple, powerful nature, the performance of Elizabeth I Loved You resembled the one that Michael had given for Sammy Davis Jr. And so why don't we just take a couple minutes to listen to the song called Elizabeth I Love You. Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you right now that the video, the, the sound quality is not the best because, of course, it looks like it was recorded off of a VCR. It may have been. <laughs> yeah, so it looks like it was recorded on a VCR and then transferred to digital. So some of it is not that great. And if you look at the specific version that I pulled it from, mm -hmm. it actually says that it's remastered, but it's still not the best audio. So hmm. there's also a little bit of dead space in there. So I'm going to try to cut out as much fat as I can when it comes to like editing the audio. I'm just warning you guys, like there's a little bit in the beginning where like little girl shows up with a suitcase and there's laughter. You know what? L let me just play it and you'll understand what I'm talking about. So here is uh, from a gala honoring Elizabeth Taylor. Here is Michael Jackson with Elizabeth. I love you.
All right, and we are back. Yes, we are. It reminds me of a song that they'd write for Family Guy when they would have like an appearance by a celebrity. (laughs) It is, yeah, cheese tacular. Oh, yeah. But honestly, like he truly did love her, and so like you, you know, it's coming from like a really sweet place. But yeah, you can tell that he truly loved Elizabeth, and this was really heartfelt. And he, you know, he took time to tell a story and that's actually like a very vocally hard song to sing because of the breath control it requires and again it's just a really good performance just proof that michael could literally sing anything and it would sound good yeah i mean he was a stupendous vocalist and and dancer i mean my god that guy knew how to move well let's talk about that for just a second okay Uh, michael was not a stranger to being in front of the camera and his next project was one that you can actually find the full version on youtube of and i forced will the thrill to sit down with me and watch every single second of it it, it was called ghosts <laughs> and that was an experience i will say that yes are you are you ready for a fun fact fun fact okay this music video holds the guinness book of world records as the world's longest music video it was actually given that honor in 2002 and it held on to that honor until 2013 when it was finally dethroned by Pharrell Williams' version of Happy. Really? Yes. I would I've not never, have been able to guess that. I, I would not have, with a gun to my head, been able to tell you who dethroned him. Oh, it sure. Would, it would not have been Happy because all we know is that, to be honest, I don't think I've seen the Pharrell Williams version. I have seen the Weird Al Yankovic version called Tacky. Which is pretty amazing. 
It is. So the plot of Ghosts is pretty simple. The mayor of Normal Valley leads a mob to the mansion of the maestro who has been entertaining local children with magic tricks and ghost stories. <laughs> the children assure the parents that the maestro has done nothing wrong, but the mayor intends to banish him as a freak. The maestro challenges the mayor to a scaring contest. The first person to become scared must leave. So he performs magic tricks, dance routines. He has a ghostly horde. Then he possesses the mayor and forces him to dance. And then after the performance, the maestro agrees to leave, crumbles to dust, but returns as an enormous demon. Terrified, the mayor leaps through a window. The families agree they all had fun and allow the maestro to stay. That's now, pretty did, much it. <laughs> did you say who directed this masterpiece? I did not. Oh. Well, go ahead. Oh, may I have the honors? Yeah, go for it. This was directed by horror effects legend, the late Stan Winston. Accurate. But what's even more impressive was his house actually did the special effects. You, okay. wouldn't, you wouldn't know it unless you knew it. But Michael actually plays five characters in the movie. One totally got away from me. I didn't get it until you pointed oh it out. Oh my God, yes. I don't want to say it because people I should do, watch it. I, I kind of feel like people should watch it and figure out who all five characters Agreed. are. But I will, I will say, yes, Stan Winston did direct this film, but he also directed one of my favorite horror movies, which was Pumpkinhead. Yeah, I mean, he's no more as an effects guy, but yeah, he's done, he's had a few directorial outings. Yeah, and they were, they're pretty darn good for, you know, in, in my opinion. So sure. the film contains three songs, Too Bad, Ghost, and It's Scary. And all of them ended up on the album Blood on the Dance Floor. So by the time Michael had attended a screening of Ghosts at the Cannes Film Festival on May 9th, 1997, the film had changed from the one that was actually released in the fall of 1996. Michael revealed that the director, Stan Winston, thought that the dance sequences should contain more music. And as a result, a short segment of Ghost originally played only over the end credits, which was edited into one of the sequences. A portion of the song, Is It Scary?, which was mostly recorded during his history sessions with Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis producing was also used in the film. So those were the three songs. So I'm not quite sure how he got the Guinness Book of World Records because technically it's three different songs, but mm. I don't know. I If someone can explain that to me, I, I would love that because I'm not really sure how that worked out because Pharrell's song Happy is one song, you know? True. I mean, maybe it's lumped under one video. Again, I don't know the rules, so. Yeah, I don't know. Hard to say. So even with the changes that were named, I'm made, I'm not really going to go into it because, I mean, there's already a very long series that Michael was actually satisfied with the original version. Stan thought that, this is a quote from Michael, Stan thought that we should put more songs in the film, so we did, but I thought the verse version was very good and I was satisfied. A late decision was also made to include It's Scary on Blood at the Dance Floor as another soundtrack song in addition to Ghost. To accommodate it, a remix of the tabloid Junkie was removed. So there's a, a song called Tabloid Junkie by Michael, for those who don't know. And the remix of that, which was supposed to go on Blood on the Dance Floor, was actually removed. The as remaining remixes were Scream, Money, Too Bad, Stranger in Moscow, This Time Around, Earth Song, You Are Not Alone, and History were performed by artists such as Pete Heller, Wyclef Jean, and David Morales. But... Michael wasn't overly enthusiastic about their inclusion. The least I can say is that I don't like them. 
I don't like that they came in and changed the sounds completely, but Tony says that kids love the remixes. And that was a quote from Michael. Hmm. Blood on the Dance Floor slash the history in the mix was released on May 20th to coincide with the next leg of the history tour, which would begin in Germany 11 days later. Both the album and the lead single, the title track, all went on to be number one in the United Kingdom and were hits all over Europe. So because Will mentioned that song in our last episode from Michael as being one of his favorite songs, why don't we take a listen to the song Stranger in Moscow? So here is Will's favorite Michael Jackson song, A Stranger in Moscow.
right, and we are back. That is my favorite, one of my favorite Michael Jackson songs. So good. It's a good song. My only problem with that whole song is like knowing how to trim the beginning and the end mm-hmm. because it gets to a point where it's a little bit repetitive, but like when he's actually in his like element of singing, performing, like it's a beautiful song. It is a really layered song when it comes to meaning. Oh, sure. Yeah. It's such a beautiful song. So I can see why it's one of your favorites. It is. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hey, LD, I hate to interrupt you. You've got a good flow going, but we do have to take a quick break for our sponsors. All right. I believe we're back. All right. I hope you guys found some deals that appeal to you. And let's get back to Michael Jackson. So I will say due to a lack of promotion in some corners of the world, uh, the album only went on to sell around 6 million copies. <laughs> womp womp. Oh no, just 6 million. But the, the figure is this still is still apparently the highest ever for any remix album of the time. Mm. So uh, that was at the time of publication of the book Making Michael Inside the Career of Michael Jackson by Mike Smallcomb. When that that book was published, that was the fact that it was given. So, and what year was that? I'm not sure. I didn't. Okay. I didn't look at the publishing date. I always get confused with when, when I try to look at publishing dates because you know they have like <laughs> different copyright dates when they put out different versions of it. So it's yeah, like, yeah. So if somebody could tell me how to read publishing dates, that would be fantastic because I'd <laughs> love to know. I could also probably have Googled it, but uh, I don't know if you guys know this, but between this podcast, the other <laughs> podcasts that I produce, and my actual job. Time is something I don't have a lot of. So, um, you know, some things fall by the wayside. I apologize. No kidding. (laughs) By the time the history tour resumed in Germany on May 31st, Michael was under different management. Shocker. Because he fired Sandy and Jim, who'd been representing him since 1990. Sandy stated that he was actually dismissed because he refused to go on television to defend Michael over claims that he was anti-Semitic. And all that had stemmed from the they don't care about us lyric controversy, which was the last song that I played at the end of the episode of our last jaunt with Michael Jackson. The duo was replaced with someone named Breck Benamar, who was a media advisor who Michael had started the business company Kingdom Entertainment with a year earlier. Ben was brought in mainly to oversee an investment and to cut the cost of the history tour. The first leg had lost $26 million. Whoa. Yeah, because of the huge cost of staging the show and Michael's very large entourage that he traveled with. It's crazy. For the second leg of operations, they would be cut by 50% to reduce overall loss. So I guess they, they walked into the second leg knowing that no matter how well they sold out, there was going to be a deficit. So yeah. over the course of Michael's 35 dates around Europe in the summer of 1997, fans and those close to Michael became concerned over his apparent substance abuse, which is not really something that we have touched on in this entire series, just specifically because the resources that I was doing my research with didn't really focus on it. But over several occasions, concerts were in danger of being canceled because Michael was still in bed in his hotel room minutes before the beginning of the show. Oh, so like, yes, yeah, so dangerously close to missing it. Uh, it would later be revealed that he was using a powerful anesthetic, which will be coming up a lot, especially in episode 21. And that was called propofol. Mm. He was using it during the tour as a sedative 
because normal sleep aids would fail to work. Michael would receive it intravenously, used usually in hospital settings, but he would have a doctor come to his hotel room and administer it to him. Hmm. Now, Michael was never a great sleeper, but his insomnia became serious issues during the tour. He would struggle to sleep after a show because of the adrenaline rush, and he felt real pressure to get rest in order to be energized for the next show. So basically, if you guys know anything about Judy Garland, you know, they would give her uppers like pep pills during the shooting of The Wizard of Oz so that she'd be up, 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 up when they were shooting. And then they would literally just give her a sedative just to put her down for the night. Jeez. And then the, to wake her up, they give her another pet pill. And so she got hooked on this stuff. So, you know. That does it, your heart is just insane. Yeah. And so the, the same kind of they, the same kind of thing was happening to Michael. Like he would have to just kind of be knocked out to get any mm. kind of sleep. Michael's wife, Debbie Rose, said that he had turned to Profilval only after sedatives failed to work. I think they tried it and they hadn't worked. And if he couldn't sleep, he couldn't perform. Michael was at the end of his rope. He did not know what to do. Debbie warned Michael about using such a dangerous drug, but asking him about the fatal consequences, Michael told her that he was more concerned about not sleeping than what could happen. So that's a pretty darn eerie prophetic thing to say. Yeah, very much. When you know the, the end of the story. Yeah. There's a Miami-based doctor who treated Michael several years later, believes that Michael's chronic sleep issues were caused by the surgery to his face. He stated, you have an area inside of your nose. And for all of those who listen to this podcast, know that I'm probably going to butcher it because it's something medical and I am the worst at names and medical stuff, but they're called turbinates. And if you remove those, it's possible that you produce what they call empty nose syndrome, which produces insomnia. Uh, to me, that's probably what caused that. And that is an actual quote that I had to paraphrase because there were a lot of medical terms in there that I was pretty sure I was going to just absolutely butcher and that I did not understand. So please do not get mad at me for paraphrasing that particular quote. But basically he was saying there's this thing in your nose and if for some reason it goes away, you will not be able to sleep. That's what Weird. I pulled out of that. So he he got hooked on the proof of all then. The final show of the tour took place in Durban, South Africa in October, signaling the end of both the history and the blood on the dance floor campaign. It was a grueling tour for him with 82 shows, but Michael received criticism in some corners for always singing like the Jackson 5 medley and want to be starting something during each concert. So he's like reaching all the way back into his catalog and not doing the newer stuff. But I think like, the general consensus is if you go to a concert, you want to hear the old stuff, right? <laughs> I mean, that's what one would imagine. Nobody likes that. This is our new album. No, we don't care, you know? Yeah, I have tickets to go see New Kids on the Block, and they had better do every song from Hangin' Tough. Like, <laughs> and you, could give, you couldn't give a crap about anything they've released in the last five years, if there's anything. Uh, well, the song, is it The Boys in the Band? I think that's that's one of them. And there was a video that I watched where it was like the idea of dance like no one's watching. Those two are really good songs. It's just like mm. I don't have those emotional connections to those like I do cover girl. Sure, it's a nostalgia ticket. Tonight, like Salt and Peppa, I don't care what you do, but if you don't sing Shoop, I will openly riot. <laughs> Rick Astley, 
you you know you know what you've done. You got two songs, dude. If you if you sing both of them, you will be just fine. I mean, are you are you including "Cry for Help" in that mix? Or no, I am not. <laughs> ah, well, that's just unacceptable. I'm sorry. <laughs> I want I want to be I want to be Rick Rolled. <laughs> I mean, you're going to the place to get it done. Yes, I am. I'm so excited. But you know, like th- that is such a critic standpoint of like they didn't do their new stuff like whatever it's good yeah, who stuff. cares yeah and there were some outlets that said that his voice appeared hoarse and not the level it had been in previous years now that could be a valid point i don't i didn't see any of the footage from this particular tour but tell me that you can do 82 shows travel as much as he does have an issue with sleeping have an issue with breathing like he does and his voice is not up to snuff like if it was i would be shocked yeah it, it would it would take its toll for sure uh despite the substance abuse the only concert that michael had to cancel during the entire tour was on september 1st in belgium following the death of princess diana the rescheduled date took place 2 days later at a cost of $170,000 whoa yeah, the tour itself actually grossed a total of $165 million, the most of any solo performer it had that had ever, like any any solo performer had ever garnered. Like it was the highest grossing tour from a solo performer of all time. Ever. Okay. But he still lost $11 million due to the high cost incurred during the first leg. It's so crazy. Couldn't make that up. Yeah. Well, it, before it was $26 million. So, <laughs> so, they brought it down considerably and his uh his new partner mm-hmm. brought that down considerably he cut the cost in half and and only incurred 11 million dollars worth of loss i mean if you're gonna so, lose and you know reduce that as much as you can but still it's it just it's staggering numbers it's just it, unbelievable it's ridiculous numbers but you know it's 11 million dollar loss so mm-hmm. but it could have been a 26 million dollar loss so good on ben for cutting those costs yep there you go December, Sony decided to release a single comprised of the song Smile, and it's scary, which would be the final act uh, on any history Blood on the Dance Floor campaign. Michael wanted to promote the release with a $2 million video for Smile, but instead of shelling out millions of dollars when the campaign had essentially come to the end, Sony wanted Michael to promote the song just by singing Smile live at the Royal Variety Show in London and on the popular German Sunday night entertainment TV show, Winton Das. And for those who don't speak German, and by that I mean mainly me, it actually means bet that, or at least Google Translate told me that that's what that meant. So there. <laughs> I don't know what bet that means, but hey, Winton Das. You may have just alienated a bunch of German fans, but anyway. Or I summoned a demon. Either, Either way, way, yeah. We're going to have a little fun. (laughs) But of course, Michael was tired of performing because the tour had just finished. Like he just got done with it. He's like, I don't want to do this anymore. Just put out a single. The label didn't believe the single would perform well without a live performance. So much to Michael's frustration, the release was actually canceled. Little did he know at this stage, a full blown fallout with his record label would sabotage the final studio album of his life. We will get to that in a little bit. In November of 1997, Debbie Rowe announced that she was pregnant with a girl, her second gift to Michael. This was a child that they had said that they conceived in Paris 
and Michael was elated. At this time, he had purchased a new house for her to live in Los Angeles, and she moved there with her two dogs, and life seemed to be pretty good for her. Man alive. (laughs) She must have been pretty happy with her life. And Man Alive was a live double album released in 1998 by Manfred Mann's Earth Band. Oh, who's going to do it? We don't have TJ. Well, to I think in. I think you need to step in and do it, sir. It's my uh, NPR voice. Yeah, go for it. Okay. <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen, our federally mandated Manfred Mann's Earth Band reference of the podcast has indeed been satisfied. Very nice. And next up, delicious on dish. <laughs> on, on the road. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I was trying to remember an NPR show and I just couldn't. I just went with the Saturday Night Live equivalent. This American Life, that's one. This American Life, yes. (laughs) Next is. (laughs) All right, back on track. Michael prepared himself for another baby, excited to see his family grow. Though he and Debbie still didn't live together and they never would, they did get along really well. She was his friend who just happened to be the mother of his children. The other woman in his life was Lisa Marie Presley. She was still the one who had his heart and Debbie knew it. She told me that Michael had Lisa's picture in the bedroom on his nightstand. Debbie never had any misguided notions that Michael was in love with her and she had never been in love with him either. That is still incredibly creepy. I mean, it's not, it's not creepy. I, I can play devil's advocate and say, I know where Debbie is coming from. But would you have your partner with a picture of their ex by the bedside? I don't know. That, that's well, over the line for me. They're also married, but they don't live together. And at this point, she's going to have two of his children. Still, so like, still. I don't, I don't know. To continue with the quote, though, what he has with Lisa. Now that's true love. I've always known it. She never fought with it. I've only encouraged it. She would never want to come between Lisa and Michael. If Lisa would have his children... I would have never done it for him, Debbie said. There would have been no reason for him. And that's a quote from the book, The Magic, The Madness, The Whole Story, which again, I absolutely encourage you to read. He does an excellent job of kind of being on a, like a fly on a wall in so many different situations. So to wrap that quote up, Debbie never had any preconceived notions that Michael was totally in love with her. Uh, She gave him something that he wanted desperately and he his mom really kind of pushed him into marrying her so i you know coming from debbie's point of view you know we can talk all night about what we would do in that situation but the fact is she's in that situation sure and so anyway you know that's that's where debbie stood with michael she knew that lisa marie always had his heart paris Catherine jackson was born on april 3rd 1998 Now, here's something incredible about Michael Jackson. (laughs) He actually contacted the Pope at the Vatican. Yeah, at the Vatican in Rome to see about the possibility of having him christen the baby. However, a Vatican official sent a letter to Michael through his representation in Los Angeles explaining the pontiff did not want to be involved in what many would perceive as a publicity stunt. Hmm. Now, funny enough, the Vatican had already been down this road with Madonna a few years earlier when she attempted to have the Pope baptize her first child, and she was also turned away. Oh, wow. In May, he began to look into entertainment projects with his new business partner, mogul Don Barton, who had opened up a casino in Michael's birthplace in Indiana two years earlier. They viewed potential cities in the U.S., the Virgin Islands, and Las Vegas, and 
and and one in the African country of Namibia. But by July, the pair's attention had turned to Detroit, where they announced plans to build an ambitious $1 billion hotel, casino, and theme park named the Majestic Kingdom. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, telling the line there. <laughs> you were so close. Barton believed that the Majestic Kingdom had the potential of growing into the world's largest African-American company in the world within two years. But following the campaign to convince the people of Detroit to approve the scheme, Michael discovered that in August, the plans had been rejected. So Mm. womp womp, no no Majestic Kingdom. So close. It was also around this time that Michael turned to music executive Michael McClain to manage his career, replacing Ben. It also should be noted that McLean had become a key figure in music and also was a part of the founding team of Interscope Records all the way back in 1989. And Interscope is a pretty big record label. I think we've all heard of Interscope Records. Yeah, absolutely. After his ambitious business failed to materialize, Michael returned to the recording studio in August of 1998. For his next project, to one of a sweeter sound would involve working with some of the best in young hip-hop, R&B, and New Jack Swing producers around. And that started with Sean Puff Daddy, P. Diddy, Diddy, Dua Diddy, Diddy Combs. Hey, that's another man for man. (laughs) That's two this episode. Boom. I think he was going just by Puff Daddy at that point, wasn't he? Or P. Diddy. I don't remember. Mm. It might have been Puff Daddy. But uh, Michael had actually... So he, he worked with Puff Daddy to write a song for the album and producer Kenneth Babyface Edmonds was also approached. Now, Michael had already worked with Babyface during both the Dangerous and History sessions and the pair collaborated on a song called On the Line and 96, which was recorded for the Spike Lee movie called Get on the Bus. To this collaboration, the two got together again and worked on at least two songs one that was called Angel, which was supposed to be inspired by the birth of Michael's son and described by Babyface as simply fantastic. Michael also expressed interest in working with Devante, swing leader, writer, and producer of the band Jodeci. Just by proposing ideas to Michael, none of the material would ever be developed any further. Invincible is the 10th and final studio album by Michael. Released on October 30th, 2001 by Epic Records. It was Jackson's sixth studio album released through Epic, and it was the last to be released before his death. The album features appearances from Carlos Santana, the the Notorious B.I.G., and Slash. It incorporates R&B, pop, soul, And similar to Michael Jackson's previous material, the album explores themes such as love, romance, isolation, media criticism, and social issues. The album's creation was expensive and laborious. How was it really? Do tell. (laughs) He stated that the multi-genre production in 1997 didn't finish until eight weeks before the album's October uh, 2001 release. So he worked on that for close to four years. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was reported that it cost $30 million to make the album, making it the most expensive album to make ever. And there was no concert to promote Invincible. Jackson refused to tour, adding that the already growing rift between him and Sony Music following Sony's decision to abruptly end the promotion for the album, Jackson made allegations in July 2002 that Tony Matola was the devil and a racist who did not support his African-American artist but use them for personal gain. Hmm. We'll get to that a little bit more. Invincible debuted at number one on the Billboard 200 and in 10 other countries worldwide. The album was certified double platinum in January of 2002 by the Recording Industry Association of America, or the R-Hi- 
and it sold over 8 million copies worldwide. The album's lead single, You Rock My World, peaked at number 10 on the Billboard Hot 100 and was nominated for the Best Male Pop Vocal Performance at the 2002 Grammy Awards. The album spawned two more singles, Cry and Butterflies, as well as the promotional single, Speechless. Invincible received mixed reviews from music critics and it became its most critically derided album. Retrospectively, reviews have been more positive and the album has been credited featuring early examples of maybe the worst kind of music. And I'm sorry for our fans, dubstep. You're not a fan of that genre. No, I'm not. It's loud and, and scary. In 2009, it was voted by online readers of Billboard as the best album of the decade. You rock my world. Let's talk about that. It's uh, released as the lead single from the album, and that was released on August 22nd, 2001 by Epic Records. Peaked at number 10 on the Billboard Hot 100 and was Jackson's last top 10 song in the United States until Love Never Felt So Good, which featured Justin Timberlake and peaked at number nine in 2014, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. The chart position of You Rock My World was attained solely on airplay alone, as no commercial single was initially issued. Crazy, right? That, that is, I wonder, what was behind that decision? Don't know, but it's really impressive. Yeah. The track also reached number one in France, Poland, Portugal, Romania, South Africa, and Spain. It also peaked in the top 10 in Australia, Austria, Canada, Denmark, Finland, Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, Sweden, Switzerland, and the United Kingdom. And the song was nominated for a Grammy Award for Best Male Pop Performance at the 44th Grammy Awards. As part of the promotion for You Rock My World, a music video was released. The video, which is, you know, super short at 13 and a half minutes long, was directed by Paul Hunter and features Chris Tucker and Marlon Brando. In the music video, Jackson and Tucker portray men who are trying to gain a woman's affection. The video has been compared to Michael Jackson's previous videos like Smooth Criminal and The Way You Make Me Feel. You Rock My World was performed only twice by Michael Jackson, once at Madison Square Garden in New York City at a concert on September the 7th and 10th to celebrate Jackson's career as a solo artist. Footage of that performance was shown in the two-hour CBS television series entitled Michael Jackson's 30th anniversary celebration. So why don't we take a short break and just listen to Michael Jackson's Rock My World. All right. Thank you. 
we're back now it's interesting you made that comment about sort of the sound of this one because it does feel like his older songs it does but it also sounds very indicative of the late 90s early 2000s kind of like uh j-lo like sure. if the the song if you had my love i mm-hmm. think there are a lot of riffs that kind of sound similar to what she was putting out and there is that kind of like justin timberlake kind of beat happening mm-hmm. behind it yeah, I think it's got um, kind of that that pep of, again, the way you make me feel and the, like those kind of older songs by Michael Jackson. Yeah. All right. So are you ready for a fun fact? Mm-hmm. All right. Apparently, Michael stopped recording Invincible to work in secret in a small Los Angeles studio on a soundtrack for a planned remake of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory in an attempt to secure a lead role. His acting career never really panned out the way he'd hoped it <laughs> No, because he was up for some major roles. And... But yeah, but he thought that he'd be the perfect that like that role would be the perfect fit for him. And <sighs> and he planned on kind of using the soundtrack 
to sort of bait or bribe his way to get the part. Okay. And apparently he had several meetings with Warner Brothers and they were only interested in his soundtrack and not for him to play their lead role, which eventually went to somebody that has been in the media a lot lately. And that is, of course, Johnny Depp. Yep. According to director George Lucas, Michael also wanted the role of the universally loved character Jar Jar Banks. That, uh, wow, what an alternate universe that would be. In the, the 1999 blockbuster Star Wars, The Phantom Menace. But financially, it was a blockbuster. That is true. That Yes, yes. It, it was a blockbuster. And there are some people who were like going back and rewatching it saying, it's actually pretty good. And I'm willing to give it another shot, but I just, I can't with Jar Jar Banks. By the turn of the millennium, Michael's movie plan still hadn't come to fruition. And uh, just another side note. Side note. That we never really touched on was his life with Madonna. Apparently they hated each other. And this was well enough known where there's like a bunch of YouTube videos about it. And so we really didn't touch on it. And that's my fault. But of course, again, like, if you can point out stuff that I've missed in this almost 20 episode series on Michael Jackson, I'll make another episode if you guys want me to and just cover everything we didn't cover. <laughs> <laughs> we, we can do that. Don't, don't make me do it. Another episode. of <laughs> <laughs> Please don't. But it seems like their lives actually run really parallel because... You know, she wanted to have her baby blessed by the pontiff, but she did successfully get roles in films based on songs. She actually got the role of Evita with the song Say Goodbye. And then she tried to get the lead role in the film Memoirs of a Geisha using, yeah, using the video for Nothing Really Matters. She did not land the lead role in that movie, though. But the one role that Michael De- Jackson did get... And I was so excited for was he did a cameo in the 2001 film Men in Black 2. Yep. (laughs) Where he wanted to be, he wanted to be an agent and he was like, I can be Agent M. I'm like, yes, you can. So um, I want to say at this time, Debbie was feeling kind of crummy and the arrangement that she had with Michael just didn't sit right with her anymore. So she asked for a divorce and Michael gave her one on October 8th of uh, 1999, No Questions Asked. He also gave her about $10 million in the settlement, beginning with a her first payment of $1.5 million in October. So pretty much she's like set for life. Yeah, I'd imagine. Now, now we're going to do a pretty big time jump here, which is because he just kind of lived out his life and career in 2000 and 2001. Then another baby was born in 2002, a boy he named Prince Michael II, which is now why you can see Prince Michael I is Prince Michael I. He was confident that uh, he wanted to have more kids in the future. And so he was going to name all of the boys Prince Michael, kind of like the same way that George Foreman named all of his boys George. (laughs) George, 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 and George. (laughs) Now, they nicknamed Prince Michael the second blanket. Michael explained that it was an expression that I've used from my family's employees. I say, you should blanket me or you should blanket her, meaning blanket as a blessing. It's a way of showing love and caring. So basically covering someone in love. So blanket mm. was a, a name about like affectionately saying that this person's a blessing. They're covered in love. And uh, this particular child who was nine months old at the time became the subject of a lot of bad press. Not him in particular, specifically Michael, because if you'll remember, Michael dangled him off a balcony in Germany in 2002. Oh, the pictures were, I mean, you couldn't avoid them. 
you couldn't but i think i'm not i'm not standing here saying like no it was okay but i think it wasn't as dangerous as everybody thinks it was but i'm not sure so i'm just gonna shut up about it but uh the pictures caused a flood of editorials speculating about his emotional stability and whether or not he was suited to be a father and michael was distraught was distraught by the media coverage but he was also really embarrassed and so he actually publicly apologized for his behavior saying that he became caught up in the moment and like Honestly, if you watch the video, Blanket starts to wiggle and it looks like he's losing his grip, but Michael immediately like jerks him back in. So I don't think that there was anything bad. Far from it. I think that he was just trying to give the people what they wanted outside his hotel room. Like he was giving them exactly what they wanted. I think it's also and, perspective because you think someone on the ground with a camera, it's going to be a different angle than, you know, what's actually up there. So it may have, like you said, looked more menacing than it was. Yeah. And also taken out of context, certain things mm. are like, you know, seem a lot, but I don't, I don't think Michael had any ill intent. I think he got caught up in a moment and he wanted to show the people his newborn baby. He got a little wiggly and I mean, like, you see Michael realizing it and he pulls him back almost immediately. So, you know, I, I, it was dangerous. I'm not mm. defending him for that. I'm just saying like, I don't think it was as dangerous as people make it out to be. They're like, he's a terrible father. Mm. No, he had like six nannies and six nurses taking care of those kids like to around the clock. So yeah. And, and I mean, it was a publicity nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. To the point where he publicly apologized for it. Which sure. Is, yeah. So and like I was saying before, I don't remember if it was in this episode because, oh my God, how far have we come or in the last episode, but the identity of Michael's third child has never been revealed. He explained that the other two babies were from natural conception and the new baby was the result of artificial insemination. Mm -hmm. He said, I use a surrogate mother and my own sperm cells. She doesn't know who I am and I don't know her. I don't care what race she was as long as she was healthy and her vision was good and her intellect. I wanted to know how intelligent she is. Mm. He first noted that the mother was a black woman and then later changed the story and said that he didn't know her identity. And just so you guys know, Prince Michael II was a very blonde and had blue eyes. Mm. Debbie has confirmed that the child was not hers. Now, in the end, if Michael did or didn't know who the mother was, he took that information to the grave. Now, hopping over to something that I had mentioned way earlier and didn't expand on was during the recording of Invincible, Michael had seen Sony's marketing plan and it and was exasperated by what he saw. And that was part of the reason why he lost motivation to work. He said, to me, it was an album that was going to do big numbers. Michael needed the album to succeed, not only to further enhance his legacy, but also to kind of bail him out of financial trouble. By 2001, Michael was in debt uh, and just like ballpark figure. What's the national average debt? I mean, it's in the trillions, isn't it? Oh, or like, I thought you meant no, like, like the national deficit. No, uh, no, the no. average person? The average person. Ah, uh, good question. I don't know. Like, I don't I don't know what it is either. Probably but it's 50 probably, or 60,000, I'd imagine. Yeah, it's probably significantly less than the $231 million in debt that he was. That sounds about right, yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure most of us are not in that much debt, but he was borrowing from Bank of America several times in the 90s using his 50% share in the Sony ATV catalog hmm. and his own songs as collateral, which I didn't realize that you could put something up like that for collateral that wasn't 
like a tangible thing. Well, while we were talking, I looked it up and it turns out the number is much higher. It's actually 92,000 on average. Really? Yeah. But again, no one's near that 231 million mark that you quoted. Yeah, we're going to talk about some of the things he'd spend his money on right about now. He owed Sony for personal advances, recording costs, and a bill for the album promotions and the millions that the company had paid to remaster his old albums. So how did he spend his money other than, uh, you know, something against Sony, like what he owed for Sony? Mm -hmm. Well, here are some of the more extravagant things that he would spend his money on during his lifetime. Number one, the Neverland Ranch. Okay. Mm -hmm. Entertainment Weekly reported that at one point it cost Jackson $10 million to keep it up. And that's, I don't know if that's a week or a month. They didn't give a time, but $10 million even just to keep it up for a year would be exorbitant. It's but he had to yeah. keep, yeah, it's the ranch, all of its amenities, including the train, theme park, <laughs> zoo, and theater. Wow. The other thing, animals. Over the years, he collected a ton of exotic pets and animals. Uh, the, the documentary Searching for Michael Jackson's Zoo with Ross Kemp recently aired on ITV investigating the fate of the Neverland Ranch Zoo animals. But you have to remember, he had addition to Bubbles the Chimp, which was probably his most famous companion. They're definitely most publicized. The ranch was home to a ton of different animals. At one time, the zoo was believed to contain, contain as many as 50 different species, including giraffes, tigers, alligators, and even elephants. Don't you need like a license for that? I mean, I'm assuming he had it. I'm I'm, I'm honestly assuming like he had people on board to just take care of the ranch and any kind of licensing. Probably. But I mean, we've been to the ranch. You've seen how big it is. There's plenty of space to, you know, to create an area that is safe and hospitable for animals. So it wasn't like they're trying to shove a giraffe in our two bedroom apartment. (laughs) (laughs) Also, honey, can I have a giraffe? Uh, we'll talk about it off, okay. key, off audio. Okay. So again, another thing that he spent his money on was the amusement park and arcade. Uh, one of his pricier purchases were for the visitors to Neverland Ranch would be a Ferris wheel, a roundabout, bumper cars, roller coaster, and a really, really impressive arcade. Apparently he had some amazing games and like there there are pictures of where the arcade would be it's a sizable room and apparently it was packed to the gills with like pinball machines and arcade games so and you know that those machines take constant maintenance so yeah, that, pinball that, machines are very tough to maintain yes they are he would spend his money on movie memorabilia he loved movies he bought the 1939 gone with the wind oscar award for best picture for a reported 1.5 million, but in 2016, after his death, it was actually reported missing. So someone has stolen that Oscar. What? Yeah. Jackson spent substantial amounts of cash buying a range of other memorabilia from famous films. Perhaps one of the most unexpected pieces from his collections are the actual set of scissor hands worn by Johnny Depp in the film Edward Scissorhands. What? After his passing, the gloves went up for auction and they were said to have gone for a value of this is fairly reasonable the cost of these i would have assumed that they would garner more money it looks like they got five thousand three hundred dollars for them i would have paid more for the actual scissor hands from it it does sound surprisingly low i mean i would assume that's tens because like number one it's a tim burton film number two johnny depp wore them and number three 
Vincent Price handled them. Yeah, I think that's where the real value is. And probably why Michael bought it, if you think about it. Oh, yeah. Well, think about what he just released, Ghosts. Mm -hmm. That was very Vincent Pricey. Plus, who did the rap on Thriller? Of course. So, yeah, he had a history with Vincent Price. So I would have just assumed that the gloves were even more expensive. Uh, He apparently had an affinity for life-size action figures of superheroes. Okay. So he had statues of Batman, Superman, Spider-Man, and even Bruce Lee. And there is also a life-size version of Darth Vader. (laughs) Uh, Art. Remember, my brother very early on said like he would walk into places and go, I'd like that piece, I'd like that piece, I'd like that piece. And then they just sell it to them. So yeah, he spent a ton of money on art. He actually purchased an oil canvas painting for $46,000. It's a painting called Cleopatra's Last Moments and was signed by the artist D. Pauvet. And I'm pretty sure I'm butchering that name. And uh, that was dated 1892. Wow. And of course, he would buy gifts for friends. He would make huge payouts to friends, once buying himself and Elizabeth Taylor two bottles of the most expensive perfume in the world. One bottle is $75,000. Jeez. It was a limited edition perfume, which came inside a flask made of platinum, gold, and diamonds, and was packed inside of a walnut box that could only be opened with a gold, diamond, and ruby key. Oh my God. So Michael Spinning was out of control, so he really wanted to make that album successful. The one thing that really pissed Michael off was that Sony had implemented a budget cap on his music videos. And you know how Michael feels about his music videos. They're so integral to his process. Mm -hmm. And just look at even the most base Michael Jackson music video. It's still better than half the stuff that's out there now. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, So it frustrated him when he would actually lose a degree of creativity because of these caps. He always wanted to do videos that were innovative and he wanted to continue that. But some people just want him to stand in front of a camera throw some lights on him and hope something magical happens. And it doesn't work like that for Michael. Mm. It might work like that for some artists, but he has to have a vision. Remember, he has such a passion for film and storytelling. Like his videos were an event and here Sony comes around and they're like, nope, you can only spend this amount of money and that's it. We're not giving you any more. You're trying to change his process, yeah. Sony chose to release cry as the album single outside the u.s instead of michael's preferred choice of unbreakable when he saw the one million dollar budget allocated for the video it angered him so much that he actually refused to appear in it in november 2001 sony was forced to go ahead and shoot it without michael's participation uh that month butterfly was released in the united states and on radio airplay and it only peaked at number 14 on the Billboard Hot 100. A commercial single was planned, but for whatever reason, it was shelved. Like Cry, Michael wasn't happy with Sony's pitch for the Butterflies music video and refused to participate in a project that he didn't believe in. A video was never filmed. It was released commercially in Europe and Australia in December, but performed poorly on the charts. According to documents, Sony actually refused to release songs even at the behest of Michael's own people. Despite all the disagreements behind the scenes, Invincible sold an estimated 3 million copies worldwide within five days of its release. Okay. Within five days, not too bad. (laughs) If I could make, if I I could make $3 million in five days, I'd be fine. Oh yeah. (laughs) Billboard reported that it would soon increase to 5.4 million, but all of a sudden there was a stall and it tumbled out of the top 10. 
there's no reason behind it. It just stopped selling. In the United Kingdom, it was out of the top 10 after three weeks. And after five, it was out of the top 40 altogether. Sales were completely stalled. And there was there was a lot of disappointment, Tommy Mottola said. Now, the name Tommy Mottola should be a fairly familiar name to our listeners. Will, do you know who Tommy Mottola is? I'm trying to place it. I, I know I'm going to kick myself when I hear it. He was married to Mariah Carey. Okay, that's not what I would have figured, but okay. He's one of the biggest producers in the world. He's currently the chairman of the Matola Media Group and was previously the chairman and CEO of the Sony Music Entertainment, which was the parent company of the Columbia label for nearly 15 years. So that's just a little background on Tommy Matola. He said Michael's perception that it was not acceptable that he would fail. It was certainly nowhere near the sales we needed to recoup the expense. Because again, remember, it was one of the most expensive albums ever recorded sure but michael did continue to promote the album in 2002 with the release of more singles and he had a grammy performance and he had several public appearances so you know he was still scratching and clawing to get these sales in now i'm going to read you an article from entertainment weekly from july 10th 2002 jackson has spent the last couple of months complaining that sony didn't do enough to promote and market invincible which was released last november on sony's epic label which sold 2 million copies in the U.S. and only a few more in the rest of the world. Very lackluster figures by Jackson's standards. Sony says it's done plenty, having spent $50 million producing and promoting the album, but it balked at Jackson's earlier request this year for $8 million to shoot a third video for the album, The Times reported. But the dispute over the handling of Invincible grew out of a larger struggle between Jackson and Sony over Jackson's efforts this year to renegotiate his contract with the label. Where he has been spending, where he has spent his entire adult career, those involved tell those involved in the negotiations tell the times. There are two sets of assets. One is over the Jackson's master recordings, which Sony is supposed to turn over to him in seven years, but he wants in three. Owing those will mean he no longer has to split the royalties with Sony. The other is that Sony ATV Music Publishing Company that Jackson co-owns with Sony will hold the copyrights to several hundred thousand songs, including the catalogs of the Beatles and other acts such as Bob Dylan. But last week, Sony ATV bought Nashville publishers A Cup Rose, which holds the rights to 55,000 country songs. Both, huh. Jackson, both Jackson and Sony want to buy out each other's stake in the publishing venture the Times say. The Times quoted two people close to Jackson saying that he plans to sue Sony. If you look ahead at what's happening in the courtroom, one of them told him, then it's going to get interesting. Sharpton tells the Times that he didn't know about the dispute between Jackson and Sony was that acrimonious when Jackson called him in May with the idea for the Blacks, Black Musicians Initiative. Michael had told me that he was involved in negotiations at this point, Sharpton said, and that's Al Sharpton, if uh, I didn't mention that before. I would have thought so. <laughs> but I did not know if it had turned hostile or not. But it had. Coming to a head with Jackson's public appearance Saturday, including one at a Sharpton-sponsored rally where Jackson called Matola, who was, you know, Mariah Carey's ex-husband, a racist. Later in the day, he held up a poster depicting Matola as the devil. Sharpton distanced himself from those comments, saying that he had never known Matola to do or say anything racist in the 15 to 20 years he's known the executive. Other African-American musicians, executives, and producers rushed to Matola's defense. 
Al Sharpton's Music Industry Summit yesterday, Jackson continued to call the industry racist, though at this point he no longer singled out Matola by name. He blamed the industry's racism for turning the public against him. Once I started breaking record sales, he began. I broke Elvis's record. I broke the Beatles record. Once I started doing that overnight, they called me a freak, a homosexual, a child molester. Actually, it was about 10 years between Jackson breaking sales records with 1982's Thriller and the child molestation allegations, which Jackson settled out of court with a multi-million dollar payment to the accuser's family. He has never been charged with a criminal offense. They said I bleached my skin. They did everything they could to turn the public against me. It's a conspiracy, he added. I know my race. I look in the mirror and I know I'm black. Sharpton called Jackson's comments eloquent and tried to expand on Jackson's complaint to a, a systemic critique. We are today calling for a meeting with every head of every record company to begin a discussion about artist contracts and their business dealings within the African-American community, he said. Still, it was hard to see the complaints as pertaining to any artist besides Jackson, since the only other musician who seemed to have joined Sharpton and Cochran's and that's Johnny Cochran's crusade, was 80s rapper Doug E. Fresh. Explains Fresh, there are a lot of artists who are afraid to stand up. Okay, so this is from an article from July of 2002, which kind of carries on that idea. Jackson took on Sony Music Chairman Tommy Mottola this past weekend, and this is of course from July 2002, accusing the head of his record company for being racist and as a part of a race conspiracy against Black artists. Though it was anticipated that Jackson would challenge the practices and standards of the music industry and champion artist rights when he spoke with the Reverend Al Sharpton's National Action Network in New York's Harlem neighborhood on Saturday. His personal attacks against the Sony executive came as a surprise, not least of all to Sharpton himself. Most of Jackson's comments were constrained to the overall treatment of Black artists, the struggle of whom he said he shared. The pop star compared his troubles with the record company to those of artists who struggled financially, saying that it was an incredible injustice taking place. The record companies really do conspire against these artists, Jackson said. They steal, they cheat, they do everything they can, especially against Black artists. People from James Brown to Sammy Davis Jr., some of the real pioneers that inspired me to be an entertainer. These artists were always on tour because if they stopped touring, they would go hungry. If you fight for me, you're fighting for all Black people dead and alive. We were deeply offended by the outrageous comments Mr. Jackson made during his publicity stunt. The Saturday, a statement reads, the executive he attacked is widely supported and respected in every part of the music industry and has championed both Mr. Jackson's careers and the careers of many other superstars. In launching an unfounded and unwarranted attack against this man's reputation, Mr. Jackson has committed a serious abuse of power that comes with being a celebrity. This bizarre fault statement that Mr. Jackson made on Saturday made it clear that his difficulties lie elsewhere than with the marketing and the promotion of Invincible. Hmm. Ever since 2002, there's been an intense speculation as to why Sony suddenly canceled the promotion in March of that year. Perhaps the most popular theory is that Sony's Japanese executives wanted to acquire Michael's 50% of the share in the Sony ATV recording catalog, also known as the Beatles catalog, and therefore deliberately tried to sabotage the sales of the albums by not providing it sufficiently with the promotion necessary. Hmm. As mentioned previously, Michael was relying on Invincible to sell well because he had these huge bank loans and debts with Sony. And 
if Michael struggled financially, it might have been in his best interest to sell his 50% shares in the catalog. And the weird thing is Sony had its first refusal. Michael himself believed that it was a big enough conspiracy. Any, like it, the, the, the idea that there was a conspiracy against Michael in the eyes of Sony was crazy. They said like, why would anybody want to sabotage anything when everyone was there to make money? It's... And this is a quote from Tommy Mottola. Tommy Mottola denied the conspiracy theory. He said it's, and this is a language warning, so skip ahead 10 seconds if you have kids in the car. It is total bullshit, he said. Why would anyone want to sabotage anything when we're all there to make money? It's the same people saying that our government was part of the 9-11 conspiracy. I mean, come on. That was part of the quote? <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't oh have said that out loud unless it was a quote. No, that's, oh, wow. So, yeah. That's that was from Tommy Mottola. In reality, the decision likely had nothing to do with Sony wanting to push Michael into a corner. Michael had certain expectations. Of course he did. He felt like Sony's marketing plan for Invincible was crap and he hated that cap. So he's really annoyed when the label refused to give him more money to do what he had always been doing. Sony, on the other hand, was irate that Michael wasn't cooperating with a campaign because He's refusing to tour. He's refusing to make promotional appearances or accept budgets or accept pitches that are happening for his music videos. And at the time, labels all over were cutting costs due to faltering sales because we're almost, if you remember, to that time where what, what exists? Well, talking about digital music, right? Napster. Yeah. LimeWire. Oh, LimeWire. <laughs> like this stuff is being introduced. So of course, like sales are starting to fall because you can start getting things digitally and outright stealing them. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> how it started. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The lawsuits speak for themselves. Yeah. So like, of course, people aren't going to be said like there was a time there where people thought it was the end of the era of recorded music. Because they're like, how are we going to get their money? Because we can get, like, people can just, like, wander in and steal from us. Ultimately, Michael and Tommy's ego got in the way of promoting a great album. That's what it boils down to. Michael had high expectations, and he had learned to live with a certain level of creative flair and the ability to just, you know, surround himself by yes men. People are like, oh, you want to spend $8 million on a music video? Totally fine. Let's do this. And it wasn't a problem. But now the music industry is facing a serious blow and they're trying to cut costs. But of course, like Tommy Mottola also has an ego. So yeah. like, like he's not going to get away scot-free. He is very well respected. And um, I've just heard, you know, in circles, he does have an ego. But I think a lot of people have ego and it always gets in the way of doing good work and it can break up friendships. Yeah. So Michael decided that he wasn't going to sign another contract with Sony and the label no longer needed him. He wasn't a company priority because he was leaving after Invincible anyway. Why bother promoting an artist that had no future with the label? Many, including Michael's brother Jermaine, therefore felt that Sony deliberately stopped promoting the album so that he would find it harder to get a new deal elsewhere. If Invincible sold poorly, other labels might have felt like Michael had lost his ability to sell records. If Invincible sold poorly, other labels might feel like he had lost his ability to sell records. So like you're only as good as your last project. Sure. No label throws its promotional weight behind a wanton artist 
that's trying to, you know, that's halfway out the door. So it was a way of punishing Michael for his disloyalty. Now, to wrap this up, to date, Invincible has sold at least 13 million copies worldwide, still putting it in the top 20 best-selling albums of the decade, which is the 2000s for those who keep track. Engineer Stuart Brawley believes Invincible and Michael's other albums before were always compared unfairly with Thriller. In my opinion, Invincible was good, if not better, than the other albums in the genre at the time. You get lucky like that. You're lucky if you get something like Thriller once in your life. Even Michael Jackson was going to struggle trying to make Thriller Part 2. Regardless of the disappointing sales, Michael remained confident that Invincible would still be appreciated decades to come. Art, good art, never dies, he said. And that's where we're going to end this week. Thoughts, honey? Yeah, I. first of all, I don't remember the Invincible album as well as I would have liked to going into this episode. So I think I may give it another listen. Um, you know, and... I don't want to use the term bad timing, but in a way, I think Michael Jackson's expectation was high. You're right. Digital music is on the rise. Record companies are seeing sales starting to fall. I think it kind of created a perfect storm. And and granted, he did surround himself with all, like you said, the yes men. And this is this is a part where I do feel bad for Michael. I feel like he's trying, he's making the effort, and just things he's doing are just not the balls bouncing the wrong way. I mean you know, like the the photo of the child where he's, quote, dangling him over the balcony. You know, every step he tries to make forward somehow gets twisted into a step backwards. And, you know, you stumbled upon something that was huge is the, the sleeping pills, which we ultimately know where that leads. And, you know, how much that is unaddressed or kind of buried, I think, only makes it worse later. Yeah. And the thing is, you're right. There is a perfect storm brewing. Michael is in financial trouble. That's the problem with always surrounding yourself with yes men. Someone needs to be there. Like John was the perfect person for Michael. Yeah. And it genuinely shocked me and made me super sad when he fired him. And when he fired Frank, like those are the two people that I felt like in his life kind of reined him in. And after this, like who is in that much debt? Like, how do you get to that point where you're like, holy crap, like this is, I owe so much money. I got to reel this back. Yeah, I mean, and it's part of, it ties to what you said before, it's part of his, he doesn't think small, nothing about Michael Jackson thinks small. So people, it's easy to look and go, how do you blow, you know, 20 million or whatever, if I had 20 million, you know, okay, whatever, you know, but again, where he's dealing with $20 million, that's like you or I dealing with, you know, $100. So I think there's a bit of a sliding scale there. Well, I mean, I guess this is like a good thing for you know, people in the normal world to go, yeah, Michael Jackson seems like he had it all, but I don't have as much debt as he did. So (laughs) yay. Makes my 90,000 look small, according to the national average. (laughs) Yeah. The thing is, we're very close to the end and it feels like he's just kind of skating in, like things are starting to close in on him. You can even see like he's got three kids now and we've barely talked about his family. In a couple episodes, you know, he's in a massive amount of debt. He's on the outs with Sony. He is in love with Lisa Marie. But at this point, I think she is, I think she gets remarried at some point. And, and the scariest thing is he's got the propofol. Yeah. That's really the dark, like it's coming more, becoming more and more prevalent. And it's again, knowing where the story goes, it's incredibly, incredibly eerie. But here's the thing. He was on propofol almost 10 years before he met Dr. Conrad Murray. 
yeah, it's it's still it's it's an addiction, and you know it's it's a, a real monster, especially when he's losing everything. You know, they that's what they say his addiction is not about the the substance; it's about what's missing, and he's losing everything. Michael's losing his music career; he's getting attacked from his family; he's in and out of lawsuits. It's everything's crumbling. Well, he did. I do believe Michael actually was quoted as saying, "The bigger the star, the bigger the target." He's one hundred percent right. So, but the higher the flag, the higher the wind. <laughs> Yeah. So that is where we're going to end this week's episode. I've now got the hiccup. So that's awesome. <laughs> like a drunk uh, Looney Tunes character. Next week, we are going to make it all the way up to, I believe, 2007. So that's and the penultimate the, episode? That is, the, in theory, <laughs> if everything goes well, this is the pen, the next episode will be the penultimate episode. So uh, from... You know, tonight we are going to close out with a song we mentioned before, which we <laughs> actually came out in 1994 and then was remixed in 1997 for Blood on the Dance Floor. So tonight we are actually going to be closing out with one of my favorite Michael Jackson songs, which I think I said that about almost every Michael Jackson song, but that's because it's true. It's, it's fair. I mean, I have different genres of Michael that I love, and uh, this happens to be my favorite angry michael song and at the time it was the most expensive music video of all time i think that it has so far been broken but at the time it was astronomical and uh, so if you haven't figured it out the song that i'm going to play is uh is scream which is a duet with his sister janet so from all of us here at rock and roll heaven to all of you out there in radio land just remember we love you very much Will, do you have anything you want to say to the audience? I think I will quote the wise words of TJ too and say, bye everybody. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. Check us out next week where I swear we're getting so close to almost being done with this. <laughs> almost there, almost there. Good night.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points. 